When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Kimberly Mack. Kimberly is the author of Fictional Blues, Narrative Self-Invention from Bessie Smith to Jack White, and has written for publications such as No Depression, Pop Matters, and Hot Press. Her latest book is Living Colors, Time's Up, a recent installment in the 33 and a Third music book series published by Bloomsbury Academic. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, of course. To get things started, um, can you please share with us what your book is about? Yeah. So my book is focused on a black rock band, Living Colors, second record, their sophomore effort, Time's Up. Um, That came out in 1990. And it's really a book that's taking a lot of different perspectives and angles on this one record. Um, it starts out as kind of a biography. Uh, Living Color is a band that, you know, criminally does not have a biography written about them. I mean, there is a book out there that um, has some biographical elements, but there's not kind of a straightforward bio on this band. So I wanted to remedy that. And uh, so the first chapter really lets you know who these four men are. Um, I think that their backgrounds give us a lot of insight into how they became the politically active and, um, you know, and also, of course, the musically adventurous band that they became. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter is oral history. And um, it's a making of you know, the making of the record. And um, I'm so grateful to have had the chance to interview all of the members of Living Color, all of the current members, and then the original bass player, Muzz Skillings. And then I also was able to interview the uh, producer of the record, Ed Stasian, uh, the engineer, Paul Hammingson, uh, Corey Glover's vocal coach, Greg Drew, and Verna Reed's guitar tech, Dennis Diamond. And last but not least, uh, the late Greg Tate, who was a friend to the band um, and also just a legendary cultural critic who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, But I had the opportunity to interview all these folks. So Greg Tate is not in that section, but everyone else is. And it's just a, um, you know, really wonderful, I think, chance to get to know how this record was made. Um, And then the third chapter is personal this is a, a very personal project for me. Um, I, I know we'll talk more about that later. Uh, so it's a memoir and, um, and also just, um, I do do it kind of a track by track, but it's all extremely personal and uh, quirky and weird. Um, and then the fourth chapter, I wanted to get the perspective of uh, the critics because, um, you know, Critics had a lot to say about this band. They were critically acclaimed, um, but also 
you know, their race and being a black rock band at that, in that time and place in the late eighties and going into the nineties was actually, um, you know, kind of, um, um, frustratingly controversial. Um, so that chapter is focused on the critical reception. So I get the critics voices in there. And then the last chapter is, um, really kind of thinking about the commercial, um, the commercial, uh, reception of the record. And then also just the legacy, um, what this band did, what they accomplished and, um, how we should be thinking about them right now. And, uh, yeah, so that's the book. So the members of Living Color grew up with a lot of political and musical influence in their lives. Could you tell us more about their upbringing? Yeah. Um, oh boy, what an interesting group of people. Um, I think, you know, their backgrounds were different in some ways, but what they all really shared was, um, you know, families who were listening to all kinds of music. I think that's something that really jumped out at me when I was interviewing them is that all of the band members uh, had very, very eclectic um, tastes. Their families had eclectic tastes and they were exposed to everything. You know, the way Vernon put it was Vernon Reed, the guitar player, the way he put it was, you know, there were no guardrails. You know, um, he was never told that a certain kind of music um, should be played or listened to um, by a person in a particular body. You know, he never had that. So he listened to everything. Um, and all the members of, of Living Color did. And um, what's also interesting is that they all ended up in New York City. You know, they all... Uh, met in New York City, and um, half the band is 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 um, uh, Brooklyn. Um, uh, Muzz was in Queens, and um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Will was in the Bronx. Yes. Um, so, you know, but how they got there. I think is, is very, very interesting. You know, both Vernon and uh, Doug Wimbish, the bass player, current bass player, you know, they had, they had immigrant parents who um, came from other places um, and uh, took a gamble on a new life in the United States. And Vernon Reed's uh, situation is particularly interesting. His parents were from Montserrat and they, uh, migrated to, to London, found themselves unwelcome in London, and then moved to the U.S. Um, and Doug Wimbish's um, mother was from Nassau, the Bahamas, and ended up coming to the United States. And then we've got, you know, so we've got that migration, we have the other migration, the one that most people think about um, when they think about U.S. migration. And, you know, you've got the South to the to the north, and that was certainly the story with um, Will Calhoun's family. Um, uh, that was the story with part of Doug's family. His father um, migrated from Georgia to Connecticut, um, and um, and you know these folks had those things in common, but 
Um, I think the other thing that all of the band really shared that makes a lot of sense when we fast forward to the Living Color um, emerging in the late 80s is that their families were all, um, you know, really politically engaged and politically conscious. And, you know, like Will Calhoun grew up in an Afrocentric home um, where he was always um, kind of, you know, reminded of the contributions of Black folks in the United States and and in a diasporic sense, you know, what Black people in a diasporic sense have, have contributed to the world. Um, you know, Vernon grew up watching television um, and, you know, and seeing what was playing out uh, during the civil rights movement and, and seeing the, the hoses and the attack dogs. And, you know, he talks about it the way he said it to me was, you know, he looked down at his, at his, at his hands, um, you know, looked down, um, you know, at his, at his, at his hands and realized that, you know, the people who were on the receiving end of the attack dogs and the hoses looked just like him, you know, had his same um, skin color um, and how illuminating that was for him. Um, you know, and Corey grew up in a, a family that had a history of um, <clears throat> really, really taking social justice um, issues seriously and um, protesting and activism. So, you know, it makes total sense that, these four people would find each other, um, you know, musically adventurous souls, politically engaged souls. Um, and then also, you know, they share, I think all of them, you know, kind of a, a middle-class backgrounds. Um, they all had um, families who were, you know, hardworking um, homeowners, um, people who were just really invested and, and, and committed to living out some version of the American dream. Uh, so yeah, when you think about all of that and think about their backgrounds, it really makes sense that, that they would at some point all come together. Yes, because living color, all of them are very intelligent individuals with great musical education and there's a reason why they chose rock music over other forms they understood you know the history behind it they understood what went into it and they then they contributed to that but critics didn't quite see that connection and they labeled them um as almost being sellouts in some ways because they chose one form over another and but that criticism is coming from a you know, a lack of understanding and education about the erasure of black voices, about the ways that um, colonization has impacted the music industry. And I was wondering if you could tell us more a, a bit about that and, and specifically criticisms they got from other musicians, which I imagine must have been really hard for them to deal with because these were other individuals going through the same kind of experiences and in industry as they were. Yeah, Living Color had, um, they were dealing with a lot, you know, when they when they were um, coming together as a band, figuring out the vision for the band, um, getting a, you know, kind of a foothold in the New York City, um, they, you know, they came out of like CBGB, small clubs, New York City, New York City band uh, scene, 
And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, there are just a lot of people who didn't understand what they were trying to do. And, 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 you know, and it wasn't just white people, you know, it was black people also, you know, there are a lot of black folks who, um, you know, just didn't, didn't see rock music as black. And, you know, this is a, this is a long standing structural, um, deeply embedded, still entrenched problem um, where, you know, of course, rock and roll um, came out of rhythm and blues um, and blues and rock and roll in the beginning, you know, had black people, you know, right in the forefront, forefront, right? You know, we had little Richard and Chuck Berry and, um, um, Big Joe Turner and, you know, other folks, Fats Domino, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, very, very, very visible, but somewhere along the way, especially when money, um, became obvious that there's, there's real money to be made, um, and that this was not going away. It wasn't a fad. Right. And, and then, you know, later in the 1960s, when rock and roll became rock, you know, was rebranded as rock, um, you know, black people were suddenly erased from this genre. Um, and I mean, effectively erased, like, and it was again, not about Sonic, you know, it wasn't about what we what were hearing, you know, Maureen Mann talked about this, um, you know, and her work has talked about it. This idea that in the 1970s, if a, if a, an artist was playing, um, a black artist was playing an electric guitar, a, let's just say rock guitar, like straight up rock guitar, um, and there's a, there's a rock sound going on, but it's a black band, they would be categorized as funk. And if it was white folks playing the exact same music, they'd be categorized as rock. And, you know, this, this separation and this erasure, again, as I said, was so complete and so successful that black people also internalized this and, and moved away from, from rock and, 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 you know, um, and just decided that rock was, was, was white. So, you know, living color when they are, you know, emerging and of course, Vernon Reed and, and Greg Tate and Condé Mason had formed the black rock coalition in 1985 to kind of address some of this stuff. But, you know, nonetheless, they're making this music and they're, and they are hearing from black folks, you know, what are you doing? Corey Glover talked about that in the book, you know? Um, and then they're hearing from, white folks, what are you doing? Um, and then of course, breaking through into the industry was an uphill battle for them. I mean, an absolute uphill battle. Mick Jagger, yes, produced their, their demo. And I think a lot of times people think, okay, yeah, Mick Jagger, you know, snapped his fingers and everything opened and, and, you know, they still couldn't get signed for a while after that because the industry just didn't have an imagination for, what to do with a black rock band. Like, what do we do with this band? How do we, how do we market this band and who's going to want to see this? Um, so they really, really, really had a tough way to go. Also what they were dealing with is that they didn't, ha did they then did have um, 
success. You know, it did happen with the first record, um, quite spectacular um, commercial success, you know, selling millions of copies of that album, um, winning a Grammy, winning you know, MTV awards, you know, all this stuff, of course, critical accolades, um, critical reviews, uh, like, like positive critical reviews. Um, you know, they really had everything going for them. Um, once the record j- gained some traction, you know, they were touring with the Rolling Stones and the Steel Wheels tour and that helped. Um, but then you had, then they had another problem uh, within the Black Rock Coalition because there were other Black bands in there and other Black Rock bands who were not necessarily in the Black Rock Coalition who just didn't attain that same level of commercial success and and, and not through any fault of their own um, necessarily, but just really, you know, the industry, again, didn't have the imagination. You know, you would think that after Living Color's incredible success commercially and all the money they made for folks that they would want to, you know, snap up as many bands as they could. And they were signing bands, the black, you know, there were black rock coalitions who were signed, but they just weren't getting the actual support. Like they weren't, it's not enough to just sign a band and say, okay, go off now, you know, do what living color did and come back to us. That's not, that's not, that's not how it works. You want, you need a real promotional push, you know, you need a real marketing vision and, you know, those bands didn't get it. So, you know, so unfortunately, yeah, there was also a sense of, of, um, you know, some saltiness, you know, some, some other bands, the Blackwell Coalition, you know, kind of felt like, and, and Vernon talks about this in the book, you know, kind of felt like, you know, it just seems shady that Vernon Reed, starts the Black Rock Coalition and, and his band is the band that gets all the, all the shine, you know? Uh, so yeah, they were, they, <laughs> they were dealing with a lot. And um, from a 21st century perspective with rock no longer being in the same space or, you know, ascendant in the same way that it once was, it might seem ludicrous. Like how could, how could this have been such a big deal and how could they have had to deal with so much? But that really was what they were struggling with. And their success is a testament to not just their talent, but their, you know, their, their stubbornness, right. And their, and their, and you know, their, their, their work ethic and all the, all the things. And um, so this is just a really important band, a groundbreaking band. You know, this is the most successful, commercially successful all black rock band since Band of Gypsies, and there's been no one since that has matched this. That was Is very it, long. <laughs> no, no, it was an absolutely wonderful answer. It's a, it was a great response, and I really appreciate going into that detail because all of that context is absolutely necessary, not only just to understand what makes this band so great and what they had to fight against to have their success, but it plays a very integral role into the album you write about Time's Up because, um, as they say in the book, it was a very difficult time. Corey Glover says that despite the success on the outside, they weren't feeling it on the inside. And Vernon Reed felt they were like burdened by responsibility. I think I read that in there. Um, and so when they started making this album, Vernon described it as a kind of dystopian optimism. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about that because um 
all of that seems to be a response to everything leading up to this album and it's just it's all interconnected and it and it and it feeds each other in a very profound way that comes through in this album yeah no i think that's right and i and and you know when when we talked about that you know it was in terms of the songs on the record you know you listen to these songs on time's up and of course you know they could have been written you know this year you know unfortunately um all the things that are on there are things that we're still grappling with we're still grappling with you know police brutality we're still grappling with the you know the our imperiled environment we're still grappling with um and 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 actually this is was prescient you know the internet and the computer age and tech and and you know in all the ways that it's supposed to be helpful in some ways it is it's also harmful and um chaotic and has and has done in some cases more damage than good um and as humans we're still trying to figure out how to how to use it and harness it and 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 get the best out of it um so you know from a sonic and and you know a musical perspective yeah dystopic optimism and the lyrics um is spot on but i think also personally um in thinking about yeah where this band was where they'd had all of this huge success um and they had accomplished things that had not been accomplished by a black rock band in um a very long time um and they didn't know it then but would not be you know repeated um they did i think feel some sense of you know greg tate put it in his greg tate way um but you know there's no half stepping you know you can't you know you can't have your you know you can't rest on your laurels you know you can't just make a vivid two i mean they could have made a vivid two and you know we can talk more about that later but but they were not trying to do that um they were trying to top vivid you know they were trying to um move out of some of the boxes that they'd been placed within um i think they were their music was simplified a lot into like kind of like funk metal kind of thing and they were they were a lot more than that and they were always pushing the boundaries and always trying to expand the idea of what rock is um you know in all the ways that white artists like I don't know, Blondie or David Bowie or, um, you know, you really kind of take your pick. Um, we're always lauded for moving between genres and um, pushing the boundaries of rock. You know, a band like Living Color, they, I think, ultimately paid a price for doing that. But that's what they always wanted to do is always expand the idea of what rock is. So, you know, that's why they had like a Queen Latifah on Time's Up, you know, an Amacio Parker and a Dougie Fresh. Um, so, yeah, I think dystopian optimism, certainly in terms of some of the lyrical stuff, you know, Time's Up and the, the you know, basically saying, well, our, t- 
our time, our time will soon be up. Um, our time is maybe probably up now, um, in 1990, um, being skeptical and, um, 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 feeling some trepidation about the computer age, um, with information overload. Um, having a song like this is, this is the life as that final song that, you know, is really, uh, an amazing song for a band to have written. I think, you know, especially, you know, a young band who were just in the midst of experiencing the highest highs, um, in their career. Um, but a song that's basically saying, yeah, things will sometimes be good, but thing, but that, you know, your life is what your life is and you have to accept what, you know, the life you have, and it's not going to always be great. And your loved ones are going to die at some point and, you know, all these things. So yeah, sonically, lyrically, but I think also just personally for the band, they were, um, optimistic, um, on a high when they wrote Time's Up and were in the studio. Um, but also they were very aware, uh, as they always were, of all of the very real um, problems that were going on uh, in the larger culture, but also specifically um, issues that were of, of deep importance to Black folks. Um, you know, again, this is a band that like emerged in the late 80s, early 90s, when they were very, 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 very successful with that opening record at the end of the 80s. Um, and these are, you know, again, four men who grew up in the Black middle class with a certain amount of, of economic privilege. Um, but they were keenly aware that it was one of the worst times, you know, for like, regular black folks in the U S in New York in the late eighties was not a good time for black folks. And they're very, very aware of that. And, you know, and I'll say one more thing about, you know, and this goes along the lines of kind of, you know, intersectional identity, right? Like they are, they had some class privilege growing up. Um, they then had some success in that first record. But as Corey put it, he didn't, they didn't, they never stopped feeling like a, um, like they had to keep grinding, right? Because of their race and because of the skepticism that the rock infrastructure kind of never stopped having despite their success uh, and always feeling like they had to prove themselves. And I think um, just being black men and having everyday struggles, I think a wonderful example of this is, you know, a story that Vernon didn't tell me, but, you know, I'd read it somewhere else where he was talking about right in the height of the success of Vivid and, you know, he's signing autographs after a show and he's simultaneously trying to hail a cab, you know, it's after a show and he's outside and he's simultaneously trying to hail a cab in New York city and cannot get a cab to stop. And he's fucking Vernon Reed at the height of living colors, commercial success, and he can't get a cab. So anyway, um, dystopian optimism, right? There's so many incredible themes in this album. And that's one of the great qualities of, 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 of the album, besides it just being sonically and aesthetically and musically brilliant is just how 
prescient a lot of the themes are as you said earlier they're they're songs that we could we we could write well sorry they could write today and the opening track times up will calhoun described as bad brains energy into a climate change song and that's one of the biggest existential threats that we face right now and they wrote about this over 30 years ago can you tell us more about that track Mm -hmm. yeah um you know they're big fans of bad brains of course and um they wanted to find some way to do an homage and um and also Corey had said to me that he always 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 wanted to do a hardcore song he was really into hardcore uh you know as i said he grew up listening to a lot of different forms of music but um hardcore came later when he was a teenager and, um, you know, we go to shows in, in, in New York city. And, uh, so yeah, so he wanted the chance to do a hardcore song. Living color wanted a chance to pay their respects to bad brains. And, and then Corey came up with, you know, these lyrics about the environment and what was going to happen. And, um, and Vernon, you know, talked about just being amazed and thinking it was brilliant, you know, the words. And and it was very unique because that wasn't exactly what folks were singing about, you know, in hardcore at that time, you know. Um, so, yeah, definitely uh, um, a wake-up call, meant to be a wake-up call. I think that the music itself <clears throat> offers a nice kind of um, parallel or a nice kind of um, mirror, right, to the to what it's meant to be, um, um, you know, evoking for an audience. You know, it's meant to shake you up. It's meant to wake you up. And of course, you know, that song. Um, well, certainly, when I first heard it, absolutely and utterly knocked me on the ass. I was like, this is just wow. Um, so, so yeah, time's up prescient and, um, and also just, um, just a really fantastic song and an incredible way to start a record. Oh, absolutely. It is, it it is quite a statement. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really brilliant song. Um, you were mentioning earlier that one of the great qualities of living color was how they wanted to push the limits of rock and roll is and how we can perceive it. And part of that was that they experimented with a lot of different forms and genres, mixing them together. And we hear a lot of that on New Jack theme. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that track. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a song that is really interesting. You know, it's like, um, you know, kind of metallic, but also there's like a house, there's like 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 a house element to it, you know, like a dancey house element. And, um, and I always thought this track was really interesting, um, just lyrically, because of course it's about a, um, a drug dealer who, who, you know, is unrepentant, you know, who's just, who's just like, Hey, you know, this is how I make my money. I make a lot of it. I don't have a lot of options, you know, tell me, basically tell me what else I should be doing that I could be doing that's going to afford, you know, the lifestyle that I have now, like in my, in my position, tell me what else I could be doing. So it's really like a very pointed, um, 
social critique, obviously, you know, thinking about all of the, the structural break, you know, all the structural issues that, that can create a situation where someone um, really does have limited options, you know, and someone really um, is in a situation where intellectually it may be difficult, more difficult than someone would think to really, um, you know, say why someone should do something else uh, with their options so limited. So I always thought that was such an interesting song, a really smart song, a really great way of talking about these larger structural problems um, without being boring, right? Um, But then also, yeah, musically, it's just this really interesting mix of dance, kind of dance music with like a metallic feel. Um, And, you know, Living Color were always just so great and and are and continue to be great at um bringing different sounds together that you don't think would go together um but then they do quite beautifully there's a track on the album called fight the fight and Corey had said something very interesting about it in which he said that every aspect of his life has been in a struggle to change the system and I think you hear that uh, very distinctly on the track. So I wanted to um, get your insight into that and the band's passion to use music as a resource to challenge systemic issues. Yeah. So, you know, I talked about this in the book and, and, and of course that chapter with the, with the, that focuses on the critical life of the album. Um, and also I, I go back to vivid too, because um, I feel like it's important to, see you know how they were received when they first emerged um and then how the critics shifted um with time's up um yeah i i all all i can think you know when 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 reading all those reviews when i was doing research for the book was gosh this had to be really annoying you know just like constant you know, and of course, writers don't always write their headlines, and writers generally don't write their headlines, you know, and so many punning headlines about their skin color, you know, and playing rock and whatever. Um, but the but the articles themselves, you know, and the interviews themselves were just so focused on that. And, you know, and sometimes you'd have critics who, who would just say, this is this is absurd that I'm having to rehearse this and have this conversation, because of course, rock is black, and oh, this is insane, you know, but but not all critics were doing that. Many critics were having the conversation again and why rock and, and you know, and whatever. Um, so, yeah, I always thought, oh, my gosh, when I was reading it, all those reviews this must have been so, so tedious. But, um, but, you know, I really honestly, they were the perfect four people to keep having this conversation as tedious as it must have been for them uh, because of their education. It, you know, was their comments were never just tossed off. You know, they were never just, um, you know, just off the top of their head, just whatever spouting stuff. It was always informed by education, by um, formal education, by um, education, you know, in the streets, when thinking about Corey Glover and his activism, um, education in their homes, um, just always really caring about these issues from young ages. So 
you know, they really truly were the right band to have had this kind of success, to have had the opportunity to talk about these issues, to have been able to have a platform to speak about things that were meaningful to them um, as black people, as black men. Um, And, you know, yeah, I I really, I think that they, were the were the exact right people at the exact right time to do this and simultaneously to be reclaiming rock as black which you know i don't know um it was such an important conversation to have at that time there's one more song i wanted to ask about before we talk about the more personal aspects of the book um and it's this is the life because Vernon called it the most important song on the record. And I wanted to tell, I wanted to ask you more about why he felt that way about, about that song. Yeah. Um, I think Vernon thinks that way. And he's, you know, we, we talked about that and, and, um, and I think some of that ended up in the book, but I think for him again, this is a song that he wrote at the height of their success. You know, they they were, they were, you know, young men, he was a little bit older. He's a little bit older um, than uh, other folks in that lineup of living color. Um, I think he was probably somewhere in his late twenties or so when he wrote that, maybe he was 30 by then. Um, And, uh, or early thirties, but, you know, still very young and having all the success and, um, it's an interesting song to write at that point in your life, you know, to you're sort of settling down, you know, back to this dystopic optimism, right? Like you're, <clears throat> there's all this energy and all this excitement and all these things I want to tell you, I want to tell you in this record about all these things that are happening, all these things we care about and all these things that perhaps you should care about. Um, and then that last song is like a gathering everyone up and settling everyone down in a very personal philosophical conversation about life and, you know, and how we all have these dreams and goals and aspirations and, um, or we just simply want our lives to be different or we want our lives to be a certain way. And, um, the reality is that we have some control, but we don't always have all the control. Um, and you know, our lives, they're just like fundamental things that we're going to have to accept about what we have, you know, the tools we have, right. The, 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 and, and the things that are just going to always be out of our control. Like people are just going to die. Like they just are. And people we care about are going to die and it's going to be awful, but you know, this is part of life and part of living. And, um, so I think he feels like this record is, this song is the most important song on the record because, you know, as he put it, this is a song that was with the band um, at the height of their success, right? Because they play this song still. It's with the band when, you know, and I'm paraphrasing Vernon here, when they were not particularly liking each other. You know, they did have a period where they broke up and came back together again. Um, they were not particularly liking each other, right? Um, it was with them when, you know, he had Greg Tate still in his life 
um, and it's with him now that Greg is gone, you know, um, and it's going to be with him when he's losing parents, you know. And so I think that's why he feels like it's a really important song because it's talking about all those things and it's stuff that he hadn't really experienced yet, but could look ahead and see what was inevitable. Um, and it's just an opportunity for others, I think, to look ahead, right? And see what's inevitable and to think about appreciating your life and treating it like it's special and the precious thing that it really is to be alive um, with all of its hardship. So, yeah. So not only does your book do a really wonderful job in documenting this history of a very important band and album, but it's made a lot richer because you discuss the personal impact that Living Color had on you. And you open your book describing your first experience seeing Living Color live. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that show. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> it was um, the first show that I'd gone to that was, um, that had a, a, a mosh pit. And that would be the first of many because <laughs> during the 1990s, everything was about the mosh pit and even bands that were not all that heavy, there'd be like a spontaneous random mosh pit because young people at that time really liked mosh pits. Um, but anyway, I had never been to a show like that and I didn't know what to expect. I went with my uh, boyfriend at the time who was very familiar with mosh pits, who had spent a lot of time at CBGB's going to their hardcore matinees every week. Um, so, you know, when I went to the show, I was, it was, it was him and me and then a good friend of his and my, and my, um, college roommate. And, um, you know, when we got there, I was so excited because I'd heard the record. I thought I love the album. I love Time's Up so much. And I was so excited to go and see them live for the first time and, um, didn't know what to expect. And, you know, he, that was his name was like, Hey, you know, where do you want to stand? And my friend and I were just like, Oh, you know, let's get as close as we can. Um, let's go up to the front. And his face was just like, wait, are you sure? And we're like, yeah, yeah. Up front, up front. You know, we were getting impatient at that point. What is this person on about? Like, well, of course we want to be in the front. <laughs> and then, yeah, that was a bad idea. Really bad idea. Um, yeah, I'm amazed that I stayed on my feet as long as I did, which was not very long and really um, was afraid, like really thought I was going to get hurt. And, um, you know, thankfully Matt came and got me. Um, the only other experience I could think of like that was seeing The Cure in 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 Ireland. Um, uh, um, and, uh, you know, in feeling like, I might, and there was not a mosh pit, but just the, everyone was like jumping up and down simultaneously. And it was thousands of people. And then I fell at some point and then, yeah, that's not good. So anyway, it was fun. I had a great time, but you know, after that, we just moved way back <laughs> and I enjoyed the rest of the show from farther back. So, so you've written a lot about um, growing up loving rock music. Um, and in this book, you talk about how you thought of yourself as an interloper because you believe that at the time rock music was white. And we touched upon those um, that, that topic earlier. Um, but from 
from your perspective, what was it like to hear Living Color openly engage audiences about Rock's Black origins in this art form that you really deeply loved and appreciated, but had a complex and incomplete, I don't know that's not the right word, but but um, just that kind of relationship? So. That's a great question. Thanks. Yeah, I, um, well, it meant everything, <laughs> you know, that's why, that's one of the reasons why uh, Living Color became a band that was so important to me and um, and is still really important to me and inspired me to want to do the 33 and a third on this record and and not just talk about the record, but have a chance to talk about them and have a chance to talk about their um impact on me um not just my musical life but my personal life like they really uh opened my eyes to a lot of things and um set me on a path to reclaiming rock music as black for myself which was really really important um made such a difference you know from the moment that i stopped feeling sheepish about being in those spaces and being, you know, rock shows, it, 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 it made a huge difference. Um, you know, it doesn't change what other people are thinking, right. It doesn't, it doesn't change, um, the gaze of other people, but it did change my own internal sense of, Oh yeah, I belong here and this is my music. And so, yeah, I'm, be forever grateful to living color. And, you know, and I was also just was so just in, just awed by them because they were so outspoken and so unafraid to be outspoken. And, um, and uh, that just wasn't at all. Like I didn't have a voice like that. You know, I didn't have that sort of confidence at that time. So, which is one of the reasons why rock music has always spoken to me, you know, like, um, you know, it always was a way of um, somehow transmitting um, my feelings and thoughts into some sort of a voice that wasn't really my own, but music, rock music in particular was this vehicle for me to get out a lot of these feelings Um and also to live vicariously, I think, through some of these people, you know, with their um, fearlessness and um, um, but living in the, in the case of living color, really just like their political um, um, just, you know, uh, fierceness and, um, um, you know, righteousness, but also their, 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 their fearlessness in talking about these things. Yeah, they made a huge, huge impact on me. There's something very interesting you wrote in your book, and I want to read it here um, because I, I think it's incredibly fascinating, and I want to read it before I ask my question. And it's, um, you say, I sometimes marvel at how I came of age during the Reagan 1980s and at a time when white was the default in every realm of American culture. And this fascinates me on a number of levels because I never really experienced the Reagan eighties. I was born in 1987, but now, um, with, you know, the, the Trump administration, the influence that has had on American politics and how a lot of Reagan, um, political ideology has now been co-opted to 
push the country towards a more white Christian nationalist nation, um, I get very fascinated um, about how that was perceived 40 years ago. And, you know, especially with, with your voice as, as a black woman, because part of that um, co-opting of Reagan that they're doing now and where this is going is that it's, it's designed to um, bring about the worst aspects of that culture to reinforce this white Christian nationalist thing that they're doing now. And I just wanted to get, just get your thoughts on someone who lived through that with your experiences and how that has shaped you over, over the last couple decades. Wow. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I still, I think about this. I think about this from time to time um, because I'm old enough to have lived, um, you know, being a kid in the seventies doesn't really count because I was shielded from a lot of stuff, but not completely, totally. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm old enough um, to have lived in New York city in a time. And I don't know what it's like right now. I don't live there anymore. I haven't lived in New York since 2001. Um, but you know, I left when I was 32 and I lived there long enough to um, remember what it was like where you just did not go as a black person into certain neighborhoods and not just because you would be the only one, but because you would be taking your life into your hands. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember New York City in the 1970s when I had an uncle who did accidentally, I don't know if it was accidentally or not, but like was riding his bike in a Bensonhurst or, a, you know, a Jones Beach, not Jones Beach, a um, Howard Beach or whatever it is, one of those neighborhoods, Sheepshead Bay, and was called the N-word all the way through, like for that one moment he was in the wrong block, like all the, you know, um, so, yeah, I, I, it's very interesting to have grown up in a time where no one was trying to hide their racism. <laughs> like, you know, there had been um, some legislating that was trying to change some things, um, some legislation that was trying to change some things. But, you know, people's minds and hearts are what they are. And certainly... Yeah, in the 70s, no one was really like trying to hide their racism. Um, uh, and in the 80s, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a time where all the movies I watched, all the TV I watched, um, unless it was a specialized show, you know, that was a black show, like, I don't know, the Jeffersons or Good Times or whatever unless it was specifically speaking um, to or about black people. And it was often a certain black story that was being told, um, not necessarily a capacious one, but a, you know, a particular narrative. Unless it was that, it, of course it was going to be white. Like everything was white. You know, I think about the movies the teen movies because you know of course the 80s the whole teen movie thing was really big and i think about the john hughes movies i watched and loved i'm gonna say again i loved those movies now i watch those movies i'm just like oh my god <laughs> you know, like, not all of them but 
some in particular, you know, really, 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 really problematic. Um, but yeah, I just, I just took it for granted that I wasn't going to see, you know, anyone on a TV show that looked like me, unless it was specifically a black show. Um, I wasn't going to see anyone on a film that had any kind of situation that would be legible to me, unless it was a specific black film targeted to black people. (laughs) Um, such was the segregation, you know? Um, and so, and then of course, even beyond that stuff, just the very, very real, as I was saying, you know, the war on drugs leading to the mass incarceration that we have now, um, the trickle down economics that did not trickle down, certainly didn't trickle down to my family. Um, the, again, just the race relations in New York were abysmal in the 1980s. I mean, abysmal. Again, strict segregation, um, you know, in the melting pot like New York with millions of people. And of course, people had to connect on the streets and on the subways and then mass transit. But people lived separately. You know, black and white were really, really separate in the 80s in New York City. Um, And probably still. Um, But yeah, young black men and people were taking their lives in their hands. And of course, there's some very high profile cases of, you know, black men being, you know, murdered for just being in the wrong place in the wrong time, uh, the wrong neighborhood. Um, So it is amazing to me that I somehow got through that, not necessarily emotionally unscathed but certainly physically and i'm i still marvel at that it's like how did i you know how did i make it through there um and still have my sense of self intact uh, because it was yeah it was really not not a great time for black folks in, in new york city in the 80s so thank you th- for for going through all of that it's an incredible album an incredible book and you you wrote about it so Beautifully. So my, my only question for you now to end our discussion is what are some of your favorite songs from the album? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Time's Up uh, is absolutely a favorite. Um, this is The Life, which I think I may have said is probably my favorite song on the album. Um, it spoke to me when I was just 21 years old. Uh, and again, I hadn't experienced, um, the loss of a parent yet. I hadn't, you know, but I was struggling to, um, achieve certain things. I had all these dreams. I was really at the beginning of my journey and trying to figure out how to realize some of them. And, um, it was kind of what I needed to hear at that time. Um, and it's something I'm still working on. I'm still trying to accept things as they are and have gratitude at all times. But, um, but this was something that set me on that path to at least trying to do that. Um, and then I think what else I really love pride. Um, of course, those lyrics were really, really, um, meaningful to me. Don't ask me why I play this music because it's my culture. So naturally I use it. Um, and, 
what else? What else do I really, really love on this? Oh, and Love Rears This Ugly Head is also um, one of my favorites. Um, you know, when I heard it, I was in uh, in a relationship and in love, and it just—I just thought it was hilarious, and um, and also, you know, very relatable in that moment for me, and uh, and so. Yeah, I'd say those four songs are probably my favorites on that album. Well, Kimberly, this was a really engaging conversation, and I had a wonderful time. Uh, This is a great book, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much again for having me, and it was such a great conversation. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Kimberly Mack. Her latest book is Living Colors, Time's Up, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic.